And I just love thinking about the promises of God that have yet to come to pass. Uh, you may know this about me. I was in seminary for 12 years. All of them focused on the Old Testament. Uh, not that I neglected the New Testament, obviously. But the focus, the intention was Old Testament and understanding the gospel through the lens of the Old Testament. Uh, the, really, the New Testament, and I say this kind of in jest, but actually uh, with great seriousness and glory to God, the New Testament is an appendix to the Old Testament. It's, it's that part of God's revealed word that says, see, this is what I was talking about. This is what I was trying to reveal to you, and then I sent forth my son, and now with greater clarity, I want you to know these things that I have already revealed to you through the prophets. In my uh, doctoral level work, I looked at the book of Isaiah. It's a prophet. And so much of prophecy, Isaiah included, we anticipate or we expect prophecies that will inform us on the first coming of Christ. Uh, and, and they do. So much of the Old Testament prophesies the fact that God would send forth his son uh, to suffer and die for the sins of the world, and on the third day rise from the dead, ascend into heaven. But that's not the, the section of Isaiah that I went to in my dissertation. I went to Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27, uh, dropped right in that first major section of the book of Isaiah from chapters 1 through 39. And those chapters that I focused on assumed the first coming of Christ and prophesied the return of Christ. They, they assumed... All, everything that Isaiah would talk about from Isaiah 40 through uh, 55, and at this beginning part, it talks about the return of Christ, the glory of God coming to Zion, the establishment of his kingdom. As the church, therefore, rooted in the revealed word of the prophets and the apostles, the Old and the New Testaments, we must look back to the first coming of Christ and all that he accomplished for us by living a perfect life without sin, by carrying our sin in his body to the cross, by being crucified, by be receiving the full wrath of God, by dying, though he himself was innocent, for us in our place. Three days later, his body and all of his humanity being raised back to life ascending to heaven, we must look back to that because in what Christ has done, he secured for us the prophecies, ancient prophecies of the culmination of everything God has been doing for us on our behalf since Genesis 3 when we sinned the return of Christ. The Bible is an eschatological book. That is, it's a book that is driving toward the end. Everything in the Bible is driving toward the consummation of all God's saving plans. Today we're going to look at one such prophecy that Jesus himself gave in the last week of his life, days before he secured 
our redemption so that when he returned for us, we would be ready. One way of looking at the first and the second comings of Christ is that the first time Jesus came as a lamb, but when he returns, the second time he is coming as a lion. If he had not come as a lamb, when he would have come, if, if he hadn't come as a lamb, if he only came as he will at the end of the age, he would come and devour us all. But he came to lay down his life. That when he comes back in power and in glory, there would be some who would be saved. As I've been thinking on the end of the age from the Old Testament through the gospel, the epistles, into Revelation. Revelation is not the only eschatological book. The whole Bible is. And you can't understand Revelation without the 65 books that precede it. As I've been steeping myself in the promises of God for the return of Christ, the, the fulfillment of his kingdom, the end of the age, the beginning of a new age, God gave me a dream. It's not a prophecy. I'm not at all saying this is a prophecy. No one knows the day or the hour. I have no idea when Christ will return. But this dream, I believe, was a gift from God. And he gave me this dream two or three years ago, and it is one of those dreams. Have you ever had one of those dreams where it's so vivid that it's as if it happened? And when you wake up, you just want to fall back asleep because it was so good. I want to share this dream. This is not a prophecy. This is, this is a hope. This is a comfort. That's all this is. It, it may have been born out of my imagination because of the study that I was doing. Not a prophecy. But I love this dream. On the property where I grew up, there's five acres of grass in the front, five acres of forest behind me and a field to the side. And I was walking just in the front part of the grass. And it was, I don't know what time it was. But all of a sudden, everything changed. The lighting changed completely. And it was as if dawn, except it was the brightest dawn. You know that time when the sun just hits you on a particular angle and everything lights up a little bit differently? And, and all of these birds came out of the field, like too many to count. And they were going crazy. And they were landing in all of the trees around me. And then I looked up and I saw this bright, bright sky and dark clouds. And sort of swimming like dolphins in the clouds were angels. And then I knew in my dream, born of my own imagination, perhaps a gift from God, but not a prophecy, I, I knew that on the horizon above the dark clouds, over top of these dolphins-like swimming angels, would be the Christ. And my heart, I could feel it just pounding in my chest. And I was waiting, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and nothing. And then all of a sudden, there he was. The Lord Jesus Christ. And it was as if I had been struck by lightning, and I was jolted up into the air, filled with, with a divine energy. And then I woke up. I long for that to be real. I would trade every day between this day and my last day if that could happen right now. Is that where we are as a church? 
There should be no greater hope than that moment when Christ comes on the clouds and we are caught up with him in glory. We're told in other places in Scripture that when that moment comes, the dead in Christ will rise. So whether we're alive or we're dead, the day will come when we will be caught up to meet Christ as he comes on the clouds. Perhaps a long preamble to this morning's message, but I wanted to share with you my heart. Because this is a doctrine that has been neglected by the church. I don't know if it's been neglected at South Shore or not. But just generally speaking, in North America, this is a doctrine that's been neglected, along with resurrection from the dead and, and all of the other eschatological doctrines, the doctrines that have yet to be fulfilled, the prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. And I don't know exactly why they've been neglected. I have my theories. One theory is it sounds so far out. Does this sound, what I just described to you, does that not sound more like science fiction than reality? And so we wonder, can we actually believe these things? And if we can believe them, we wonder... How would a non-Christian, an unbelieving person receive such a word? I'm convinced, though, that God will bless the church, that he will grow the church if we go out into the world proclaiming the things yet to be. Because therein lies our hope. Let's get into the text. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, starting in verse 5, would you please stand? Luke 21, verse 5. We're going to read down through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. And in this Word of God, an account of the prophecy of Jesus Christ days before he was crucified. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, 
And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. Yes, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let, those, let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, I pray, I plead with you that by your Holy Spirit you would give us in this church the gift 
of true, genuine, heartfelt anticipation for your return. I pray that we would treasure the thought of that day more than anything else. And I pray that we would be ready should that day come in our generation. Help me to explain this text. Speak through me in spite of all of my weaknesses and my impulses to sin and my frailties. For your glory, your namesake, but for the good of this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, the, the text that we just read can be divided into five parts. This is a complicated text, and, and it's very easy to be disoriented because it's, it's talking about two different things uh, in the main and then several others in addition to that. So, so part one of this text is Luke, five, or, sorry, Luke 21, verses 5 to 7. That's really the introduction to this text. This is where Jesus prophesies that the temple, this glorious temple that, that Herod had built, would not last, that it would fall, it would be destroyed, which was a shocking thing to say. The disciples ask, when? If this is going to happen, when? Now, this is a complicated question because it has two answers. Uh, on the one hand, the temple will be destroyed at the end of the age. There's prophecies that suggest that there will be a, a third temple. We know third temple. The one that Jesus was referring to was a second temple. So there, there's indication that there will be a temple to be destroyed at the end of the age when Jesus comes back. On the other hand, the, the temple that, that was surrounding Jesus at that time, which was the second temple... The one that we say is Herod's temple was started much sooner than Herod, but he added much to it. It was going to be destroyed in 40 years from the time of this prophecy. So, so Jesus has to answer this question with, with sort of two answers. One, this temple will be destroyed in 40 years, that is in AD 70, and there will be a temple to be destroyed at the end of the age when the Son of Man, which is Christ, returns. So, so that's what we see for the rest of this text. You see, the second part, Jesus deals with the immediate destruction of the temple. That is, that he prophesies about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That takes us from verses 8 through 24. And I'll mention this. You want to subtract verses 10 and 11, which belong to prophecy of the end of the age. We'll look at that in a moment. And then the, the third section of this preaching text runs from verses 25 to 33, where Jesus then goes from AD 70, and he goes all the way forward to the end of the age, which has not yet happened. So, one way to look at this is in our minds, verses or from our perspective, temporally, verses 8 through 24 have already been fulfilled in AD 70, minus verses 10 and 11. But verses 25 to 33 have yet to be fulfilled. 
This is prophecy that Jesus gave that has not yet come to pass. And so that may be of more interest to us. We're going to look at both. And then the fourth section is verses 34 through 36. And these are exhortations from Jesus which pertain to both prophecies. So they're exhortations that pertain to those who are awaiting the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The same exhortations hold true for us as we await the return of Christ at the end of the age. Then this section is wrapped up in verses 37 to 38, and and that's wrapping up a major section which actually began in chapter 19, verses 28 to 29. Now, a little caveat, I cannot say absolutely for certain that there will be a physical temple built, a third temple. I I may be persuaded in that that direction. I I don't want to say for sure. Uh, The return of Christ is imminent, um, and there is a lot of debate about sort of the chronology of that and things that must take place. By imminent, I mean that Jesus could return right now. But what we do have are two prophecies, one about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and one about the return of Christ. Thus, the major thrust of this passage are these two related middle sections, sections 2 and 3. The destruction of the temple and the return of Christ. Now, now you might say, well, what connects these two prophecies? They don't seem that connected. We know that they're at least separated temporally by 2,000 years. So so why does Jesus, in answering the question of his uh, uh, disciples, why does he link them together? Let me give you two reasons. There may be more, but two reasons for sure. The the first reason is the guarantee. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 22, sometime you might want to go and look it up, uh, God prophesies through Moses that there would be a prophet like Moses who would come. And he would, he would prophesy and reveal great things. And, and, and what we learn in Deuteronomy 18 is how do you know if, if that prophet is reliable and trustworthy? The things that he says will come to pass. And that becomes sort of a grid for, for judging whether or not someone is a true prophet or a false prophet all the way through the Bible is the true prophets, the things that they say come to pass. Therefore, whenever God is prophesying about things that are far off, he has to validate the prophecy uh, that is far off. He has to validate the, the trustworthiness of the prophet with an immediate fulfillment. So on the one hand, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 says that this prophecy of the end of the age when the Christ would return is sure to come. Because the one who gave the prophecy also prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and that happened. How certain am I that Jesus will return? I am as certain of the return of Christ as I am of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There's no historian that would dispute the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Therefore, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, is as certain as the historical fact that the temple was destroyed. That's, that's one reason that these two are linked. The, the, the prophecy of the return of Jesus is so important 
so crucial to our understanding of the gospel that God, through Christ, gave us a, a down payment, so to speak, a guarantee in A.D. 70. The second reason is that the events of A.D. 70, whether or not there's a third temple or not, uh, the prophecy of, that was fulfilled in A.D. 70 prefigures the return of Christ. It's, it's a miniature version of what's going to happen over, over the whole earth when Jesus returns. So, so God's wrath and judgment, and we're told here, vengeance fell on Jerusalem because Israel was apostate. They had rejected their king. So, so the judgment was localized to Jerusalem. But it was devastating. Now, now you take the same principles. Uh, the, the, the word of the gospel, the proclamation of, of the kingship and the salvation of Jesus Christ for all who believe makes its way from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And, and every man, woman, and child has an opportunity to receive or reject Jesus as their king. Some will receive him. Others will reject him. At the end of the age, Jesus Christ returns with wrath and judgment and vengeance against those who have rejected his kingship. And he comes as king. So you see how, how the one, the, the event in AD 70, which is localized, a limited expression of God's vengeance for the rejection of people against Jesus, their king, and that becomes globalized. You think of globalization. This is in keeping with the fulfillment of what God is doing theologically. So when Christ returns, what happened to Jerusalem is going to happen to the whole world. So it becomes a shadow, a picture, a prefiguration of that which will happen at the end. Whether or not there's a third temple becomes therefore inconsequential. The two prophecies are linked by the kingship of Jesus Christ and the rejection of people of that kingship. Let us take a look then at these two prophecies. The first prophecy which is fulfilled in AD 70, runs from Luke 21, verses 8 through 24. We're going to skip over verses 10 and 11 because those belong to the prophecy of the return of Jesus. Now, before I get into this, be very careful when you want to harmonize the gospel. Uh, the things that I'm going to, to reveal today from this text, you cannot just then go and transplant them to Matthew and Mark, who have their own Olivet Discourses, where Jesus talks about his return and the destruction of the temple. Uh, and the reason I say that is Matthew and Mark emphasize much more strongly the return of Jesus than Luke does. Not that it's not here in Luke, but, but there's a significant emphasis in Luke's gospel for the immediate fulfillment, which is the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So, so you have to read each gospel according to its own emphasis, according to that which is written. Because God has, has given us four accounts of the gospel in order that he could emphasize different things in different gospels. So what I'm going to say here, the emphasis 
and the exact exegesis interpretation of, of this text is not exact to what I would preach from Matthew or Mark. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the fulfillment of the prophecy in A.D. 70. We are told, so, so this is all in response. Jesus says this temple is going to be destroyed. When is it going to be destroyed? What is the sign that this is going to be destroyed? We pick up in verses 8 and 9. And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So Jesus says, before the destruction of this temple in AD 70, there are going to be false messiahs. And Rome is going to be embroiled in wars, both civil and foreign. Skipping down now to verse 12. But before all this, so he's referring back to that verses 10 and 11, which are about the end. So returning back now to the prophecy about AD 70. They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. For you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So all that must take place in the next four decades. We just went through persecution there. So there will be false messiahs. There will be wars. There will be persecution. Christians who are predominantly Jewish in these first 40 years, they would be persecuted by fellow Jews who rejected Jesus in synagogues. They would be persecuted by Gentiles in prisons. They would be brought before Gentile kings and governors. They would be persecuted by their own family, by parents, brothers, and relatives. They would be persecuted by friends. And many of them would die. Verse uh, 16. Some of you they will put to death. But then look at verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. That's not a promise that they'd be delivered from martyrdom. That is uh, to bear witness by giving their lives. But that there's a promise of resurrection. Not a hair of your head will perish because though they kill you, I'll raise you back to life. So all that must take place from this is being prophesied in somewhere around 33. All that must take place between AD 33 and AD 70. Now, Jesus' prophecy lands right close to AD 70. They're looking at about AD 69 and 70. Verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Within the next 12 to 18 months... 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out of the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Just want to comment on that, this day of vengeance. This is not politically correct to say, but this is scriptural and important to know. What is this vengeance? God is taking vengeance on, on Israel, not every Jew. Those who believed in Christ are not included. But vengeance against Israel for rejecting Christ, their king, their Messiah, their God. We have, to, we have to see that because that's exactly what's going to happen when Jesus returns. He's going to come with vengeance. Remember when, when God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't, don't we take vengeance. Jesus will take vengeance. And God has taken vengeance against apostate Israel with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And God will bring vengeance against the nations So this is not a prophecy against Israel and not the nations. This is not anti-Semitic. This is vengeance against all the nations, which is in keeping with all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that deal with such a thing, uh, for rejecting the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, the King of Israel, who sits on the throne of David. Vengeance. Continuing in verse 23, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. So, So the wrath and the vengeance and the judgment is localized against Israel who rejected her king in the immediate fulfillment to Jesus' prophecy. They, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. It's exactly what happened. Until recently, until the last 70 years, Israel has been dispersed among the Gentile nations, which, which seems to indicate to me with the regathering of Israel to, to Jerusalem and, and to the promised land, I can't help but think that we are approaching the end. Without being able to to put a day or a time on it, knock at the door, Uh, without being able to put a day or a time on it, thank you, Yosef. It's a stunning uh, motif that goes with the sermon. You know, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. <laughs> I just sort of want to make sure who's at the door there. Uh, if it's Jesus, he's allowed in. Uh, without putting a day or a time on it, God is gathering Israel back, which the prophecy here is that from A.D. 70... Look at this very carefully. Look at verse 24. In AD 70, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. The prophecy is that Israel would lose its land. They'd be dispersed. 
Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Which has happened for 2,000 years. Until. There's an end to this. Until what? Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now God is gathering Israel back to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can't help but see there that, that we are beginning to see the until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, I, I don't know how long God will take between now and, and, and the end of the time of the Gentiles. But, and right now, the Temple Mount is still occupied by Islam, right? The Dome of the Rock. And, and so, sure, God is gathering his people back to Israel. And Jerusalem is divided into different quarters. But most importantly, the Temple Mount still has uh, an Islamic shrine on the top of it. It's a placeholder. It signifies that the time of the Gentiles is not yet fulfilled. If it were fulfilled, there's no way that Islam would, would have possession of the Temple Mount. So we're not there yet. But, wow, you look around at what God is doing. Know the times and the seasons. So Jesus says that Jerusalem will come under siege. The city will be destroyed temple will be destroyed, the people will take, be taken into captivity, and then there will be Gentile domination, which is called the time of the Gentiles, which I would say is the, the church age. What Jesus is prophesying here is the end doesn't come in AD 70. There's the time of the Gentiles. He doesn't say how long it will be. But, but he, he prophesies that God has set aside some time to bring Gentiles into the covenant. And this is prophesied in different places, you know, which we don't have time to get into. But we're in that time of the Gentiles now where, where God is grafting in. He cuts off some branches of the natural tree that's apostate Israel. And he grafts in. This is Romans 11. He grafts in uh, some, some shoots and some branches from the wild olive tree. That's us Gentiles. That's what's happening now. Now, I, I, I could ask you to take my word for it and just say, you know, all of these things were fulfilled in the 40 years between the prophecy and A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. Uh, but it's so important that we see that, that Jesus is prophesying about, about the immediate future here that I want to just read you some ancient uh, historians that, that will take each of these prophecies and show how they were fulfilled. We'll see that false messiahs did come in those four decades. We'll see that there were great wars and tumults in Rome in those four decades. We'll see that there were great persecutions that came upon the church, which was predominantly Jewish in the first four decades. We read about all these kinds of things in the first century accounts of history by, by historians like Josephus and Tacitus and Eusebius who wrote in the fourth century but had access to these first century sources. So let's talk about false messiahs. Josephus writes in Antiquity of the Jews, chapter 20, uh, articles 97 and 98. Now it came to pass, while Phaedus was procura uh, procurator in Judea, this is about A.D. 45, about 15 years after Je uh, Jesus prophesied these things, that 
uh, Theudas persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. For he told them that he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. There's just one false Messiah that, that sprung up in these four decades. What about wars and tumults? Writing at the turn of the first century about the events between A.D. 40 and 70, Tacitus writes in Histories, chapter 1, article 2, the history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible in battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. And I think if you keep reading all those four emperors in a single year, uh, 67 or 68, there were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. The Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace that had, had given a great opportunity for Jesus to come into the world was broken in those four decades after his crucifixion and resurrection. And there was great wars. So when, when Jesus prophesied about wars, uh, the, the people that he was prophesying to had only really known peace. And then all of a sudden, great wars. Now what about persecutions? Tacitus uh, writes in the Annals in uh, uh, 2544, and he's writing about the 60s, uh, first century. Besides being put to death, they, that is Christians, were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clad in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in a dress of a charioteer and drove about in his chariot. I mean, it's just despicable. Nero, the emperor, would hold these garden parties and he would bury some Christians up into their waist and he would fix other Christians up on pillars and he would light his, par his garden party. He would illuminate it by lighting Christians on fire. There were 10 great waves of persecution in those early days of the church, just as Jesus had prophesied. In AD 70, Jerusalem fell, just as Jesus had prophesied. The Romans surrounded it, destroyed the city, devastated the temple. Eusebius, the church historian, writes in the 4th century, uh, he's using 1st century sources in his ecclesiastical history, on comparing the declarations of our Savior with the other parts of the historian's work where he describes the whole war. And he's, he's trying to summarize that what happened in those first four decades. And he then goes to the text that we're in. And he says, you know, when you look at the declarations of our Savior with what we've been describing in our history where Jesus describes the whole war, how can one fail to acknowledge and wonder at the truly divine and extraordinary foreknowledge and prediction of our Savior? 
So this first part is all about what happened in AD 70. It came to pass, which shows us that what we're about to read is surely going to come to pass. Look at uh, verse 24 again. All of these things had to take place until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's the hinge. Now, now we're going to telescope forward in time to the end of the age. That is, when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, which is the other side of the church age. That is, we're going to see, when Jesus returns. Notice that uh, after the time of the Gentiles, we see the, uh, the return of Christ, and this brings us to our second prophecy. Let's begin, though, in verses 10 and 11. Go back up to 10. So now the prophecy that we're looking at is looking at that which is yet to be fulfilled. Just refreshing ourselves in verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. What he's saying is, there's a prophecy going to be fulfilled in AD 70, but that's not the end. Then we have verses 10 and 11. Then look at verse 12. But before all this, then he comes back online to the immediate prophecy. So what I want to show you there is that there's textual markers. But the end will not be at once. That's the end of verse 9. And then the beginning of verse 12. But before all this. So Jesus is prophesying about the immediate prophecy in AD 70, then he skips forward to the end, verses 10 and 11, then he comes back online to the immediate prophecy. So what we're about to read is for the end of the age, verses 10 and 11. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So at the end of the age, this is what we can expect. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be political upheaval and wars. 20th century was the most bloody century on record. We see this beginning to be fulfilled. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences. So, so the natural world will revolt against us. Terrors and great signs from heavens. That seems to indicate that there's going to be something in the cosmos that will be shaken. It will be unordinary. It will be out of the ordinary. Terrors and great signs from heaven. We don't know exactly what that is. Skip down to verse 25 now. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So we've, learned, we've heard about the wars and the political upheaval. Now Jesus says, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. The natural order will feel like it's ripping apart. 
There will be cosmic, celestial, and earthly natural disasters. People, it'll get so bad that people will faint with fear. And then the powers of heaven will shake. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us how long that has to happen before he returns. Uh, on the one hand, it could be that we are already seeing that, right? We already see natural disasters. On the other hand, it could be that when Jesus returns like a lion and he enters into our world again and he comes with the clouds, he comes with the full glory of God. And, and it may be that, that the cosmos begins to melt away at his manifest presence. We don't know. But we know that the natural order will feel as if it's ripping apart. And then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. And Jesus is referencing Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Now just listen as I read it. Daniel saw this night vision. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. That's Jesus prophesied in Daniel. And he came to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. And glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says that the day is coming when he will come to take back the world. And God the Father, the Ancient of Days, will give him dominion over an everlasting kingdom. These are not very precise prophecies, but they are sure to come to pass. Jesus gives us then in verse 29 a, par a parable to illustrate the point. He told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So he says, look for these signs. When you see these signs beginning to take place, you know that the end is near. Do not predict the end. And we know from other passages, but you know that the end is near. We see God gathering his people back to Israel. I think that's a sign. We know that the end is near. But those uh, we see also, the, uh, perhaps the beginning of some of these wars and natural disasters. Then verse 32 is a difficult verse. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Uh, Jesus is not referring to the generation that he's speaking to in the temple because they were not alive when he returned. He's speaking to the generation that begins to see these signs unfold. He says it's not going to take very long. Once you see uh, signs in the sun and moon and stars, once you see nations in distress because of the roaring sea and the waves, when people begin to faint with fear because of the foreboding of what's coming on the earth, when you see the, the when it seems like the natural order is ripping apart, it's not going to be very long before I'm back. And the generation that sees those signs will see the coming of the Son of Man. I don't know if we're that generation or not. I truly hope that we are. Now, all of this seems pretty far out, that Jesus is going to return. But Jesus underscores how certain this is. Verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. 
It seems like the world will never pass away, that the universe won't just fold up. God says, or Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This return of Christ is more sure than creation itself. How then are we to respond to these prophecies? Do we just shelve it, tuck it away, pretend that it wasn't preached on or written down in the Bible? Not at all. Verse 34, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, that that day might come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. We are to watch ourselves. We are to be careful on how we live our lives because Jesus could return today. We have to watch ourselves, guard ourselves against dissipation. What's dissipation? Dissipation is when you fall into, into uh, disrepair or to um, immorality. The, the, the prodigal son, when he swindled away all of his or he piddled away all of his inheritance that his father had given him, that was dissipation. You take the good things that are given to you and you just waste them. Don't waste your life, as John Piper would say, knowing that Jesus is going to return. Don't fill your days or your nights with drunkenness. Don't concern yourself with the cares of the world. This is so hard for us. Worldliness, materialism, so easy to be caught up in, in the cares of this world. But if you're every day waking up thinking about today could be the day when Jesus comes back, it won't matter so much who wins the Super Bowl. It won't matter so much that uh, Encarnacion was traded to the Cleveland Indians. It won't matter so much what the size of your paycheck is. It won't matter so much that you've been uh, struggling financially. It won't matter so much that you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. It won't matter so much, whatever it is that you're suffering and going through. Because Jesus might return today, and then the dead in Christ will be raised, and I'll stand before the Son of Man, and all of this in, uh, suffering will be a Light momentary infliction. We are to stay awake at all times praying, God, help me to be ready. Help me to live a life worthy of your return. Uh, what do you want to be doing when the Lord comes back? Oh, God, help me to be ready. Help me to think about eternal things. Help me to go out and share the good news of your gospel with somebody who doesn't know you so that they will be ready. We are to prepare ourselves to meet Christ. Perhaps most importantly, we are to long for the return of Christ. Is this your heart's cry? Is this your deepest desire? Or would you like Jesus to just hold off until you're married? Do you buy a house? Until you retire and get to travel. Just don't come back. There's things I want to do. 
Is this our heart's cry? Is this what we want more than any other thing? Would we love this day to be the last day? And if, 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 you, if that's not your heart's desire, I, I would encourage you, I would exhort you, fall before God and ask him to make it your deepest desire to see Jesus Christ face to face. Jesus, in verse 28, acknowledges when you see these things begin to take place, don't slump over, don't, don't, don't despair, don't wish that it was far off, straighten up. Raise your heads. Look for me. Because your redemption is drawing near. When Paul was on death row, he was going to be beheaded. He knew it. Do you know what he thought about? He thought about the return of Christ. And it cheered him up. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I know that the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. He's reflecting back on his life. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Those are those things that Jesus exhorted us to, right? Knowing that he's going to return. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Paul continues, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. What day? the day of his return. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you want a crown? It's not wrong to want a crown. It's a crown of life. Don't be glad that you can cast out demons and heal people and be glad that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's written in heaven. Be glad that there's a crown waiting for you. Crown of life, resurrection from the dead, a place in God's eternal kingdom. Be glad about that, desire it, want it, cling to it. Not worldliness, but hold on to that eternal crown. Do you want that crown? Then long for, love his appearing. More than anything else. Then, by God's grace, the Spirit of God will put your life into its right perspective and you will live for Him. Jesus, I have the blessing and the honor to proclaim to you today is coming back. Be ready. Let's pray. God, I pray for us that we would be a people known for loving your appearing. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.